0: Hey, Pioneers, and welcome to episode 398. This is a fun episode where me and my guest, whom some of you will remember if you have been a podcast listener for a while, but we are gonna be having a very candid conversation on partially the history of canning, as well as some of those uh, taboo type canning subjects like reusing canning lids, What the USDA's role, how that plays out with our canning practices, what's considered safe, what's not considered safe, and where do you kind of bend the rules and where are gray areas and how do you determine in those areas What you're going to do. So, this is a really fun conversation. If you are new to canning, there is going to be a lot of advice that I think you're going to find very helpful to set you up on a path of a solid foundation of understanding canning science and safety. But if you are someone who's been canning for a while, I think that you will also really find a lot of value in this episode, especially when we start to talk about reducing sugar in recipes, and can you alter this on a recipe, and if you are going to reuse canning lids, how would be the best way to go about that? Uh, All kinds of things we talk about in today's episode. I'm really excited for you to join us in this one. It's a really good one, and my guest is Georgia Verosa. So Georgia has been on the podcast. It's been a number of years. She is a master food preserver, as well as the author of several different canning books herself. And so really excited to have her on and get a chance to chat about one of my favorite subjects, which is preserving food at home. Now, today's episode is sponsored by Azure Standard. And if you did not know, Azure Standard has a ton of different canning supplies. They just launched and released their brand new canning jars. You actually can get canning jars from Azure as well as your canning lids and bands. I've not gotten a chance to test their jars because they literally just got them at the warehouse and mine are on the way. They're on my order right now. So I'll be super excited to test them But everything that I've ever gotten from Azure, I've been super happy with the quality and I'm sure that these will not be any different. But they also have your canning funnels, the cannel funnels available, as well as pectin in bulk. Now, you know if you've hung out with me for any amount of time when we've been talking about canning that I love using the Pominus Pectin, which is a pectin that is from a natural pectin source and it allows you to do no sugar or very low sugar can because it actually uses calcium water. You get a little packet of the calcium um, and that comes with the box of the Pominus Pectin. But this allows you to do truly no sugar canning recipes when it comes to jams and jellies. But they also have it available in Azure for you to buy in bulk because if you put up a lot, yes, my hand is raised. Those of you who are watching this on video saw this. If you're listening to it the old fashioned way, uh, just know my hand is raised. But if you put up a lot of jam and jelly, I like to make sure that I have a bulk in my pectin supplies, all of my canning supplies I buy in bulk, my canning salt, et cetera. But you can get all of those supplies, including bulk pectin from Azure Standard. And if you are a first time customer and your order is over $50, use coupon code, Melissa 10, that's Melissa and then one zero for 10, and you'll get 10% off your first order. So without further ado, let's jump into this episode and welcome Georgia back to the podcast. All right. Well, Georgia, welcome back to the Pioneering Today podcast. It has been a long time since you and I have got to chat. Yes, probably three years, four years even. I think it's probably been about four because the last we did an episode talking about the Amish and Mennonite uh, ways, oh. and and food preserve, and and talking about that whole culture. So, yeah, I think it's been at least four years. So, and, well, we're long overdue for another chat. We are. Yeah. Well, I'm excited today because it's not often I get the chance to visit with someone who has is a master food preserver who has a long vast time in the food preservation world and with canning. And so I'm excited today for us to kind of cover some of the history of canning, which I've done some different episodes on and talked about that, but kind of just have a back and forth on that. And then also talking about some of those, for lack of a better description, taboo subjects when it comes to canning and kind of just talking through those, like why certain things are taboo, you know if we would use them, if we wouldn't use them and giving some context of that. So that would be kind of fun, um, historically to go back on the journey of canning and its evolution within the United States, of course, cause that's where you and I both are from and the, the USDA's role as, um, you know, with canning and like the national center of home food preservation and, and kind of that type of thing. So for from- From my research and what I've been able to discern is canning didn't really become really popular until the late 1800s, early 1900s, because the mason jar, as we know, it wasn't really even invented until about the 1850s, 1860s is from is what I've seen.
1: It's true. And, you know, I always had this romantic notion about. Pioneer forebears canning for their families. But really, canning came about as an answer to the problem of wartime supplies. And it had to do, do you know this? It had to do with a Napoleon Bonaparte. Yes. And, yes. And it was like his his troops would get sick when they had long, arduous journeys for many months. And they didn't have a good way to keep food from spoiling so bonaparte said i'll pay somebody this cash prize if you can figure out how to make food safer longer and then enter this frenchman who was like a candy maker but he was a chef and uh you know just a he was kind of a, a renaissance man in a way and he figured it out and he didn't figure it out perfectly because he what he would do is he would throw the the food into jars wrap them in burlap and then boil the heck out of them for a couple of hours and didn't even know why it worked but it worked so that was it and then another guy came along who said if we put them in in tin lined cans and put a lid on them and we boil them. It that's going to work. But you had to have a, a, like a hammer and chisel to get the lids off, and it was very expensive. And so it it didn't hit the home market, you know, until like you said, the the mid late eighteen hundreds when it, Louis Pasteur came along and said, this is why the food you know spoils. So we need to boil the kill those microorganisms, and then like you said. Uh, the you know mason jars became available they call them fruit jars and so then it was born and then it became something that a person on a budget could afford before they were just so expensive you had to be super wealthy or in the military and then it, it went from there i i absolutely love that because i did i always had the romantic notion that that it was you know my those women who came before me and they had their aprons on and you know, they figured out how to can food so they could feed their families in the in the winter, but it wasn't. It was war.
0: <laughs> so, I, Yeah, you know, and, and I was the same as you. Like, I just, you know, I remember as, as a little girl reading the Little House on the Prairie books, uh, you know, cut my teeth oh. on them, grew up with those, and Laura talking about, you know, Ma making pickles. And of course, when my mom made pickles, she canned them. You know, we water bath canned our pickles. But Now, now, later in my my life and much further down the food preservation road, I realized that what Laura was talking about was fermented pickles, which I do now, of course, myself too. And, you know, and and we do crocks and and half gallon jars of stuff of fermented pickles. But I had the same thought that when we looked historically at the Homesteaders Act and whatnot, you know, that, that most of those ladies were canning and that that's what they had in their root cellars. But really... They that's not what it was. It was the fermented food and then just dehydrating and then root cellaring techniques, of course. But it wasn't rows and jars of these beautiful glass lined canning jars because they they weren't readily available or, like you said, widespread during that Homestead Act, that real pioneer period that I think a lot of us are, you know, romanticize and, and kind of harken back to.
1: Yes, and and really until the 1900s, you know, that was kind of the change for home canning as a major form of food preservation. Before, you know, they did a lot. Of, they dehydrated things. They dried things. They salted things. They did also. They had other ways of pre- preserving their food. Um, so, and then of course it took off with the canning jars. And in America, like you said, you know, we've got the rings and seals and um that made it readily available and um you know even on a tight budget women could use that um and then and then it just kind of you know progressed and we can get to the USDA because raw them you know they cuz they do a lot for us and they do it on less than a shoestring budget and yet they keep you know american canners
0: safe yeah. You know, it, it's been very interesting because I, I did an episode and was kind of talking about the, you know, the USDA's role and in the US, you know, our different canning guidelines that we have and how those came about. And back to Oregon, for us, as, as far as modern day canning and the science that we've got right now and the testing that we have and the guidelines that we use, at least in the US, if you choose to follow them, because some people don't. But that was really when we look at, World War II. And war, again, is what pushed a lot of the testing that we have today um, because they needed the people at home, mainly the women, to can up food. And it was really advocated for by the government so that what manufacturers were there could send that food over to the troops in Europe and that food could be sent there. And then the Americans would be fed by their home gardens and what they were preserving. So it's interesting to see war, war is what was the, you know, the catalyst for even finding out about canning, very rudimentary to what we have now, but the essentials of it. And then it was what really pushed it for it to become this very forward thing as most of us know it today
1: and yet you know and yes that's true but it was the economics of of having enough food sending the food where it needed to go you know um but yes i i agree war kind of had a lot to do with it you know so but it's okay you know back to the land movement in the 70s you're too young for that i think (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I I wasn't born yet in the 70s but uh, uh, 81 oh <laughs> <laughs> and um you know and so the bats the land movement in the 70s um I had just begun well I was in high school for part of it just had gone to started college and it was a really big deal you know we Uh, And that was where a big resurgence started. I actually started canning when I was about five with my mama. And I would stand on a chair. And this is horrible to say, but we'd make, among other things, jam and jelly. And we'd pour the melted paraffin wax over the top of the jars. The jars were any jar we could get our hands on. You know, it was very different back then. And, um, And so I had always, canning had always been a part of my life. And then the 70s hit and um, Mother Earth News came out. It was, you know, the whole Earth catalog. This is all stuff that's history to you. As my daughter-in-law loves to say, it was, she goes, "That my history is your youth. <laughs> and it's true. So um, that was when I really started into it big time. I got a pressure canner. I got an all-American pressure canner. And I just was so thrilled and jars, you know, and um, and then that was when, well, no, because the USDA, they actually started s- sending out information, disseminating information for safe canning in the early 1900s. But yes. they were, it's true, but they became a really big deal, at least for all of us, you know, this is just anecdotal on my part, but we kind of turned to the USDA for safe canning recommendations. And things changed. You know, I I would hate to tell you how I used to do
0: canned pickles. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's the thing is is um it I think this is a really good discussion to have because you have people who are you know have witnessed canning much like you and I. Like yes, paraffin on the jam, you know, my husband's grandma who taught me how to make jam that would actually set. Uh, that was how she still made her jam is she would put the paraffin on. And when we were first married, you know, as newlyweds, that's how we would get it. And, you know, same thing with the the pickles doing basically open kettle canning is the term. And which seems a bit misleading because you're not actually putting anything in a kettle and processing it. Open kettle means pouring hot liquid over your yeah. cucumbers in a jar or your hot jam or whatever it is that you're putting in there but you put it in the jar's hot and then you put your lid on and you put your band down and then that's all you do. You're not actually processing it in a open kettle. So it seems funny that it's called open kettle, but that's people say open kettle canning, that's what they're referring to. And that people did it for decades. But you don't, the pr- point of processing it, and this is what I ran into way back on my journey when I first started canning on my own. And so this was good night 23 years ago now. But I would can pickles that way because I wanted them to stay crunchy. I didn't know all the things that I know now about how to keep cucumbers yeah. crunchy and pickle form, even with processing so that they last. But I, I did that. And I I think I did like 12 quarts of cucumbers. We had a really good cucumber year in the garden. And I did them in like August And so for the first couple of months, they were great. I'd go and we'd we'd get a jar off the shelf and they were wonderful. And then by the time we hit about October, so three months in, I'd go in and I would notice that a lot of the seals were coming undone. And all of the seals ended up coming undone after about three to four months. And so of course I knew that you don't eat anything that is been home canned if the seal comes undone. Like at least, thank the good Lord, I had that much canning knowledge at that point. Um, And so I was really frustrated because I'm like, I put all of this food up. We went through all of this work and all of these jars. And I think we only ended up eating like two or three jars. They all went bad. Well, now I'm kind of thankful that they went bad and lost their seal. And so that we didn't get sick by eating them. But so yes, they will seal. And sometimes they're safe doing that, but because you haven't processed them in order to kill any, any bacteria that's there and to create that stronger seal, because When they're heated in the canner, you're creating a stronger vacuum. And so now I'm just, I'm like, yes, yes, it does work sometimes, but you're taking a huge gamble on them even staying shelf stable and not having some type of spoilage spores in there that just takes a while to present itself. So I don't do it for those reasons because I don't have time and produce to waste on a gamble when I know they're going to all turn out the, if I do it the approved method way.
1: Agreed. You know, it's the same with tomato sauce. For years, we water bath canned tomato sauce without any additional acid. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, and I never got anybody sick. No one ever died on my watch, but, um, but then they started saying, you know, you, you gotta add acid and i would never do it the old way but i i hate to admit i've got a couple of old friends who still don't do it and they're still alive and kicking but you know it's like why why take the chance especially with your loved ones it it's not worth it to me and you know i even i even uh have a friend who up until maybe 10 years ago they would um boil their green beans in their jars. I think it was something ridiculous, like water bath can them, I'm talking, for like three hours.
0: And they called it good. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm with you, I know I know people who, who've done that. In fact, close, close family members and, and for me it got to the point where, because my kids were little and so I just said, you know, please tell me if if you're serving those because I don't want myself or the kids to eat them. You know, we, we just had to come to an agreement of we disagree on the way that these can safely be preserved, but I am not comfortable eating them knowing they've been preserved in this manner. So just let us know so that that we don't don't consume them. And and I, I think that's one of the the things is is we each have to come to our own determination because there is no you know, there is no canning police, right? We all have to make the, the determination. But I think, and probably for you too, what bothers me is when these methods are, are still advocated to people who don't know that they're not approved as safe.
1: Agreed. You know, it's funny because I went this morning earlier, um, I thought I would just do a quick look uh online and because you and i had had a conversation about someone who's near and dear to me canning butter and i thought how could she she's not an idiot she's a smart woman but you know it's that sort of there's like this rebel in her or something that says hey if it's good enough for a lot of people it's good enough for me so i went online and i put in a, a google search for canning butter and it was amazing. I mean, of course, I got a lot of hits on that. And and they're all advocating to can butter. And um, they looked, the, the websites looked professional. Mm-hmm. They had good English. It wasn't like you would look at that and go, you know, that's hokey. I'm not going to trust their opinion. They looked totally trustworthy. And that's what gets people. They don't understand where to go to find safe information.
0: Yeah. It, you know, and I have to say, like, I, you know, I do know, know some folks who, who are upfront about it. And, and I think sometimes people are sharing it, not, they just, they don't know the, the canning science and safety. And so they don't know that they're sharing something that's not safe or not approved. But then I, I really respect the folks who are very upfront about it. And they're like, look, this is not approved this is what my family are choosing to do. You know it's not approved, and then they're you know they're choosing to share it, which is their you know their thing and, and someone else's. But I think at least if there's that upfrontness that it's not approved, you know and, <clears throat> and 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 whatnot. so then then people know whether or not it is, and then they can make their own choice. Uh, but you know, and also with what is approved and what's not approved as far as canning, you know let's talk not- about that by the way. Yeah. Go on. Yeah. Um, well, some things just aren't tested yet, so it's not that, that they necessarily are unsafe. We just don't know because we don't have the testing because there's not a lot of funding for further testing right. on home canning. And so that's kind of where I sometimes have to, you know, I feel like it's a little bit of that gray water. And in fact, for example, um, I was doing some no sugar jams and jellies last year, and I knew that Stevia was approved um, in home canning recipes. And so I was playing with some different, uh, like monk fruit and erythritol, you know, some of those, those different, um, non-sugar sweeteners. And I did not realize that not all of those have been tested for canning safety in jam and jelly recipes. And of course, jam and jelly, you know, using high acidic fruit. And because I wasn't putting in sugar, I still was adding a little bit of um, bottled concentrated lemon juice, but I was like, oh, This hasn't actually been tested. So I don't know if this changes pH or not to where it would not be safe. And so I had one of those moments like, well, am I going to, am I, are we going to, am I going to use this and consume this (laughs) in our family? Or is this where I'm, you know, draw the line and say, no, I I don't think it is. And it's just that there was no testing on those. So I just don't know, you know? And so I think, I think that's too where where people can, you know, kind of come into those gray areas a little bit
1: me too the other thing and why i said i wanted to talk about you were talking about usda approval yeah they don't approve anything and that was something that was really kind of surprising to me it's like yeah but you should you know you guys you guys are the experts but they don't they recommend or don't recommend that's their terminology yeah and and i thought about that why is that It might just be because it wasn't fully tested or what. I don't know. But for some reason, the USDA does not approve or not approve canning methods. They recommend, which in in truth, I would say take that as approve. And if they don't recommend, I would say... You know, take that as the gospel, too. Don't do don't do do not it that way. Don't use that process or whatever it is. And so, you know, it is. It's like it's a gray area for sure. And each of us has to decide for ourselves and for, you know, our families, I would hope, what they can live with or not. And I happen to be more careful than, well, gosh, anybody I know you
0: know? Yeah. I, and I, I tend to, to be that way too. One, just because I, I want peace of mind. I don't want to wake up at 3.00 AM and wonder if I have a weird slept wrong and something feels numb as this botulism. I mean, you know, like that's just me personally. And and I don't want that. I don't want it on my conscious, um, as a, as a teacher, because you know, I share publicly. I have canning books. I know you do as well. And so for me, I'm like, I I don't want to have any doubt. I want to make sure that I'm following what we have at this moment in time as tested. And that's the only ones that I am going to be using. Uh, you know, for me, for me personally. And because I feel like as a teacher of it, you have a heavier responsibility. Oh, yeah. Um than just what, you know, you would do if you weren't in that capacity. But I also, have wondered, cause I've had people have asked me, you know, on some of the things like reusing your canning lids, because oh. it's not recommended to reuse the metal lids. Of course there are reusable canning lids out there, harvest, right? Tatler, um, Perfect excuse me, Harvest Guard, not Harvest Right. Harvest Right's a freeze dryer. Harvest Guard is another brand and Tatler of reusable canning lids. It's a two-piece system designed to be u- reused. But our metal canning lids, for the most part, are not recommended to re-can with. I use them not- for other things.
1: You're talking the seals, not the rings.
0: Yes, the metal yes. lids, yeah. But people understand that. Yeah, you know, I've had people say, well, it's in their best interest to say that they're not reusable because then you have to keep buying them. And I'm like, you know, I, I there's just enough of me that says you know, there are, you know, most companies would look in their best interest um but you do have a higher fail rate right, if you choose to reuse them because the the compound that's on those metal lids is not very thick and once it's been used of course then it's even thinner. Um but I've had people say, well, if in a, you know, situation where I couldn't get any new canning lids, I would reuse the ones that were the least, you know, damaged and and would use but them. And I-
1: if you were gonna, if you felt the need to reuse them, um, you know, it would be better to, to reuse the lids uh, from water bath canned because they don't get torqued on so much. And it would be better to use them for uh, water bath canning instead of a pressure can. That's just my own. And there's no reason for me to to think that other than it just feels like maybe that's a little bit safer to me. Um, and, and it is a problem. You know, I actually got Tattlers because a few years ago now, I wish I could remember it was probably, I say a few years ago, it could have been five or 10 years ago. <laughs> time flies but I got tattlers and um, because it was so hard to get the reusables and uh, taught myself how to use them because I I don't know have
0: you used them before the the reusables I have and once yeah once they seal they stay sealed but I do have a higher fail seal your rate when I I use them so I don't know about you do okay you do too yeah usually Usually if I do a run, so a full canner load full is what I reference as a run, um, all of my jars seal. I mean, maybe I'll have one or two jars the whole year. And I do like four, four or 500 jars a year that don't seal. That's a pretty low rate. But when I use. Oh, oh, sorry. We're having a hard time. It's it, there's a lag or something. I think <laughs> there's a little one rule internet at its best. Uh, what I say is when I use the tattlers, I have almost always one jar per load that doesn't seal to me. That's a pretty much higher rate. Oh, agreed. I can go, I can go, you know, some years at least to
1: never have one jar that doesn't seal on me. Um, It's rare for me. And um and, and but when I use the resealables like the tattlers, uh, I get I will always get something that doesn't seal. A couple of times I've got, especially when I try and do meat products, like because mm-hmm. I do a lot of meat and stew, uh, stew meat. It, when there's anything, and I think it has to do with probably the fat that hasn't been totally rendered out of the meat, they won't seal. I mean, we do sometimes, but it's not worth it to me. And I hate to say that. I I think Tattler has a place in every canner's kitchen, Um, especially like you've had people say, but what if I can't get more rings and seals? Yeah. Tattlers come in mighty handy.
0: Yeah. I I also had, um, especially with things like applesauce or that were a little bit thicker, like pie fillings. Uh, with, yes. with with the reusable lid, the siphoning was odd. They seemed to siphon different, uh, much more sensitive to siphoning, I guess would be the correct way to say that, um, than the metal lids, and at least for me.
1: And I wonder if that's my problem with, because of the siphoning, like you said, may- maybe, and when you have the grease from meat, um, you know, that makes it not want to seal even quicker. I don't know. Yeah. Interest. Yeah. I, I might have to look
0: it into that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, if you crack the code and can get yeah. where almost every jar seals using those, I would love to know it because I want them to work so bad. I mean, and they do work. Me We're not saying too. they don't work, but we would like them to work more consistently. <laughs> Agreed. Funny because I actually,
1: when I got my first batch, I thought, "Oh, goody, this is wonderful. I'll get a bunch and never have to buy them again." And then it was something horrific like almost half of my of my canner load didn't seal. Yeah. And, oh, so I actually called Tatler and I said, "I need help. I I'm doing something wrong with these." And they they were really big on well, you you Put the pieces down, you know, the, the seal and you put the lid on top. And then when you go to, to screw it, you know, cause you use the band, you can use a band from anything. Well, any canning jar, you do it. They said, you know, fingertip tight. And, but that's what the ball jars say too, fingertip tight and then go back about a quarter turn. Well, so I did that. Didn't help. I started canning water because I didn't want to waste my food. Yeah. And so I I practiced with jars full of water. And at first, it was like, oh, good, I've got all this wonderful... Well, I put that on my pantry shelves, jars of water sealed. And then I needed to start using the tattlers over, you know. I mean, it was... I went, I went through so much work to try and figure it out. And I got it better, but I never felt comfortable with with the reusables. And then, oh, and then when you go to undo the seal to take the lid off the top of the jar. (laughs) It's sort of back to like Napoleon Bonaparte and the tin cans. It's like, where's my chisel and hammer? I bought a special, yeah, well, I bought a special can opener, you know, jar opener, um, because it was supposed to work better and I still had problems. I don't know why. I'm just not, I'm not meant for technology of any sort, not even in canning (laughs) lids,
0: yeah i I kind of got to the point where I only use the the Tatler reusable lids on things that I don't if it doesn't seal that freeze well so basically like my jams or jellies you know so that way if they don't seal I can put it in the freezer and it's not going to make it mushier or impact the end you know texture but at the same time the reason I'm canning is because I don't have that much freezer space so right. yeah right. you know which is a reason for can there's so many good reasons for canning. Oh yes. Yeah. Canning is, I I laugh and say mason jars are my love language and and canning is definitely a part of that. Um, One of the things I'd I'd love to chat with you about and kind of see your, your stats and uh, stance understanding, et cetera, is on the role of sugar in canning. And especially with like jams and jellies, you know, those types of things. So, because I have people who will contact me and ask about a specific recipe and say, can I lower the sugar content in that. And so I'll tell you what kind of what my stance is. And then I would love to hear your, your response back to that. And so when it comes to like, um, you know, we, fruit, we know that we can can with no, with just water, you can yeah. can fruit and water, your color may be affected. It won't stay quite as vibrant, but there's, there's definitely recipes and, and testing that, that, that is fine when it comes to jams and jellies. Where the issue lies for the most part is if you reduce the sugar too much using regular store-bought pectin, like SureGel, um, some sure. of those other brands, you're not gonna get a set. So I use the Pominous pectin because that uses calcium water in order to get a set. And they do have formulated recipes where you don't have to add any sugar, but with they have the fruits lined out in there. If you're not adding any sugar with quite a few of the fruits, Then they have you add in a tablespoon or two, depending upon the the volume of concentrated lemon juice in order to keep the acid content up. I'm assuming, um, because the sugar helps it once it's open in the fridge because it helps absorb extra water. So you don't get mold as fast. Our 4.6 pH or lower is what keeps food safe with water bath canning because botulism doesn't grow in that acidic environment, but when it comes to reducing sugar, can that affect your pH levels at all? That was just, you know, I, I don't have
1: the answer to that. And that's another thing that I'll probably be curious about when we hang up. But um, but doesn't it seem like it wouldn't? Because yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it's like, it's not, I don't, so I don't think it would,
0: I don't know what, because the sugar helps to set Right. And okay. that's and and then like like um my lower sugar jams and jellies I've noticed they don't last as long in the fridge once they're open because sugar has that osmosis effect, you know, where it absorbs extra moisture and that's where your mold your mold spores tend to grow. So in the refrigerator life once it's opened it does shorten that lifespan. So I usually just do it in smaller jars. But I I haven't been able to find anything that would indicate that, but I haven't been able to find anything either way on it. So I know that the Pomona is they, you know, they have done testing on theirs. So I'm like, okay, well, if they have you add the lemon juice, then, I felt pretty confident in doing that and following this. But for example, I had somebody contact me about canning zucchini pineapple, which is a tested and approved recipe to do zucchini with pineapple. And then you're adding in lemon juice. So th- the acidity factor is there and it's a water bath recipe. And she asked if she could lessen the sugar in it. And I'm like, you know, I honestly, I don't know because I don't know if that sugar plays any role and because we're talking about zucchini, which is not a fruit, you know, that's- then I just, you know, I had to tell her, I'm like, I would not reduce the sugar simply because I don't know if it could negatively affect it or not. So I was curious if you had come across anything that showed that. I haven't, but it makes
1: me want to see if I can come up with something, you know, um, when I, when, like you talked about the zucchini pineapple, um, that is such an odd combination in ter- I mean, you know in terms of the type of ph we're talking about yeah that it would be i i would be very careful not to mess with the with, you know with the recipe Same. but even if it had nothing to do with ph there must be a reason it's like when people ask if they can cut down the salt in fermented foods you know do you, you know it's like well i'm on a low salt nuts don't do that you need the salt and so um, you know, there are reasons why when we get the recommended um, canning instructions for certain types of fruits and vegetables and meats and fish and all that, um, you know, uh, and when we get those recipes, I say, don't don't not follow the recipe unless you have really good, solid advice that says you can do it differently yeah you know so but yeah like with fruit i you know i with my fruit i have canned plenty of times with no salt i mean no sugar sorry or salt (laughs) yes (laughs) but um you know and i and it and and You know, I'm trying to think where I even learned that that was okay, but I've always done it. Well, I think actually we did a load or two in my Master Food Preserver class that way, you know, and um, and that was a long time ago. It was dear. Well, you maybe you weren't born. No, you would have been born. Do you remember Y2K?
0: Oh yes. My mom had the bathtub <laughs> ran full of water that night. Um, yeah, yes. And we had, you know, bags of, of, she bought up extra stuff. Not, not, it, we already had food storage because I grew up that way. I live very <laughs> rurally. We always had power outages. And so we always had some type of food storage, but mom got a little bit extra that year and made sure all the pitchers in the bathtub were full of water just in case the power went out that we would have water for a few days. <laughs>
1: Oh that's adorable. I wasn't like that but boy but that was part of why because I used to I have always ground my own grain to bake my bread and and things like that and like I would flake my own oat groats and make oatmeal. I've always kind of done it very low key, very, you know, low on the hog if you will. And so when it started coming around, people started asking me more questions, you know, like, well, how do you do this? And so I thought I'm going to do the master food preserver class so that I have those answers for them, you know, but in part, Y2K was probably one of my, one of the things that pushed me towards actually learning safe methods, you know, and, and. I didn't think we, our computers were all going to go, you know, blow up when it hit 2000. But a lot of people, a lot of my friends did and family. Yeah. So, yeah,
0: that was, yeah, I was, a, I, was uh, I had just graduated high school actually that year. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Uh, it feels like it wasn't that long ago. But then when I start to do the math, I'm like, oh, that, that, that was a while back. <laughs> Yeah. No. Well, you know, it's
1: funny because I still wake up many mornings and I look at myself in the mirror and I go, oh, my gosh, you're an old woman because I don't feel like it. And that's just, you know, we lead busy lives. We do the things we love and time goes on. And, you know, and I'm still trying to help people. You know, I love to. Well, my current, as you probably know, my current love in life is sourdough we could always have a sourdough podcast. (laughs) Oh, I do
0: love sourdoughs. I just baked a loaf last night. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, but, but back to canning, sorry. I,
1: I, I have been writing sourdough type books and, and so we, I've been doing that. I mean, I, i've been doing a lot of sourdough teaching to people in my community here yeah. well so, would you like to talk about um because there are you know when i said they don't say approved or not approved but they say recommended not recommended well i actually went on the website you know at the national center for home food preservation it's usda yes and they we have a very few these are absolutes I was surprised how few they had but they do Beets being one of them we used to just kind of do our beats well now you have to keep them hot and it's like a really big
0: deal did you know that I normally just do pickled beets I don't normally um uh, yeah M-O- yeah oh and
1: yeah, pickled be- beets are, I love pickled beets on salads. Oh my gosh, I love them. But if you just can beets, that's one of their absolutes, which surprised me. Must Beets must be hot when you pack them in the jars. Now you've already boiled them and slipped the skins and you've cut the ends off, you know. And the the root and stock in, and so now they're ready. But you got to have them hot. And people didn't used to understand that because they would say, "Cool them down so you can slip the skins off." Mm-hmm. And they, oh, cool beets are fine. They're not. So that's a must in USDA lingo. Um, and then and then we know, you know, well, another. I'll read them because there's only like five or six. Um, no pressure canning. In electric countertop, excuse me, pressure cookers. Let's yes. talk about there, shall we? Yeah,
0: I've actually, I, that one I have covered. Yes, there's no oh, good. safe okay. canning and in Instant Pots or those. And what, so here, here's one that Georgia, where I have, um, where I am not comfortable recommending them yet and don't use one because you have where there's the new pressure canner. Can that's electric that's been, you know, introduced. um, And it says, and this is kind of what bothers me because I feel like this is a a marketing language where it says uses USDA approved methods because pressure canning is the only way for non-acidic foods that the USDA recommends. However, the USDA did not actually test this canner and recommend it. And so I can't find any third-party testing on this canner. And so I can't, personally recommend using it until I can see third-party testing that shows it does in fact hold its pounds of pressure the entire time. You know, all the things.
1: I agree with you. And I actually looked that up too at one point because I had questions. uh, Somebody had a question for me. And in fact, I think they had one. Or no, they were going to get, they had the, the, the ability to get one for a good price. And I said, don't buy it. I said if it was me I wouldn't do it I would spend more money and I would get one that's approved I use that word approved even though they don't but yeah. um but I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend them at all and yet I have some Mennonite friends who use them they've used them for years um and they're all still alive you know so see that's the thing about a lot of canning rules if you will they're they're kind of amorphous they're not just black and white they're gray so i wouldn't use it um oh here was another thing so i and i'm big on on whatever i have like you can make you can can soups and stews with you know all sorts of different veggies depending on what there is but the the uh, usda says when you're mixing vegetables for canning i.e for soup only choose ingredients that have separate canning recommendations so in other words you mix together a lovely vegetable soup well cabbage doesn't have separate canning regulations celery doesn't cauliflower zucchini things that we might want to use quite a little bit in a soup like that so usda says don't use those in your soup And then of course, probably a lot of people know this dairy, no cheese, no milk, no eggs, all that. And I have a, a tomato soup recipe that I can. Um, it's like, it's embarrassingly easy to do it. And, um, and it's great in the winter time you heat up tomato soup and do a grilled cheese sandwich. It's a great winter lunch. And, um, and I like a little cream in mine. Um, And there would be people who would throw that in. They'd make the entire recipe and can the whole thing. Well, don't. Just put it in at the end, you know. Um, It's not that hard to do. And you get a little more soup, too. Oh, don't can cured meats. Yes,
0: the nitrates. Yes. Don't can cured meats. And then... And then, of course, with the exception of a small amount of bacon in some baked bean recipes, because it's a very small amount of total ratio, though, and that's why I tell people, like, there's a few recipes out there that have been tested, but it's not a can of bacon. It's a it's a specific amount to a much larger recipe.
1: Agreed. And the other thing about that, I've actually seen, and I think they were all approved. Not that I've ever used them, but um, and it's been a while, but sometimes people will use a weensy little bit of like olive oil or something. And I think that's okay mm-hmm. too.
0: Yeah. But, but I've seen say it's a very small amount. It's not a jar very of vegetables submersed in all olive oil. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And you know, so like, let's take tuna for instance, because home canned tuna is one of my favorite things in the world. And living in the Pacific Northwest, we can meet the tuna boats and get fresh tuna and all of my girlfriends and I do it. And, um, And we see uh, store-bought tuna, store cans of tuna, uh, they're canned in oil. Um, None of us, of course, do that. Um, We And half of us don't even use water. We just pack the fish and can it, if you will, dry. But what happens, of course, is there's oils in the fish. So... So there will be a little bit of liquid when you open up the jar, perfectly safe.
0: Yeah. And, and I do that. We do that with our salmon. And my understanding with the, the tuna packed and oil that we see commercially is those commercial canners can get much higher pounds of pressure and temperatures than home canners. Do. And so that's kind of why there's a lot of things we actually see canned commercially that isn't an approved safe method for pumpkin. home canners yeah pumpkin pureed pumpkin exactly pumpkin pie filling pureed, yeah i canned pureed pumpkin
1: for years and then i mean i wasn't being you know it was okay in the olden days and then they came out with probably sometime in the 70s maybe 80s and said don't do that you can't get it hot enough in the middle it's too dense so yeah. Now you, you know, you cube it into small cubes and you can do it that way. And uh, that was, uh, you know, something that I had. Well, I had to change my pickle recipes, too, because, like I said, I used to do it in a horrible way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, I actually have a question for you real quick before um, before we end up uh, wrapping up for this episode and. I had someone ask me, it was on about tomato sauce, because we were just talking about, um, you know, combination recipes, tomato soup and, and those, and one is leaving the seeds in, if it makes it unsafe, if they didn't get all their seeds up from the sauce. I've never heard that. And,
1: you know, if you use, uh, equipment that's actually made to make tomato sauce, like, uh, you know, like I have a, a steam a steamer, and I st- my tomatoes and then I take I ladle out the tomatoes and I put them in my um, strainer. And I strain out, you know, so it takes out the seeds, it takes out the skin, and it supposedly only leaves uh, the tomato' meat, if you will, the sauce. There's always a few seeds in it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing I've ever heard is that it, the seeds can make it taste bitter sometimes. Bitter. can give a bitterness. That's the only thing yeah. I've heard.
1: My t- tomato sauce is as sweet as can be. So I think, again, it's a matter of quantity. Don't throw all the seeds in. If you have a good strainer like I do, they take most of them out. But of course, more important than that is making sure you add lemon juice to your jars. Yes, or
0: citric acid. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. What? You, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm. I'm with you. And then, talking about the pH, and this is when we get into combination recipes. So, of course, if you're pressure canning, pH is not an issue. But with water bath, and because tomato sauce can be either way, you can pressure can it or water bath it. Um, you know, adding in herbs, how many, how much herbs would change the pH level? Be, you That's know,
1: a question. I don't think you could add enough to change the pH level. The other thing is, is that I'm not. I'm not an avid fan of adding a lot of herbs to food that I'm going to can. Um, I do it. I don't. When I open the jar, that's when I will generally add like my, my tomato. I never do spaghetti sauce. I do straight tomato sauce.
0: Same. Cause the flavor gets lost. If you add it at the time of serving, it's so much more vibrant and you actually get all those herb flavors. So I'm the same. I rarely actually put herbs in anything that I'm canning
1: no but as you probably know uh, some herbs will get they will change flavor and get bitter like I think sage sage we both say <laughs> yes it's just it works better to add it at the end plus you have more freedom you've got all these beautiful jars of tomato
0: sauce with nothing in them so do what you want yeah you know? Yeah, I agree. Okay, was there anything else though on that list from Abs? Did we get through it? Uh, you know,
1: there's always more though, isn't there? Do we we? It's probably we don't have enough time. You know, because there's um, do we do we want to talk like really quickly talk about safety, food safety when we like look at our jars in our pantry? We we'll go to get one. What are the things you, what are the things that are not safe? Yeah, yeah, we can, we can do a quick rundown on that. Yeah. Sometimes discoloration is perfectly fine. It might be iron, uh, darkened meat at the top might be because too much liquid siphoned out and the the meat stood on its own at the top of the jar. There's all sorts of reasons. So most of you want to look for off smelling, you know, off or foul smelling, when you pop the lid, does it kind of, you know, explode on you? That's pressure inside. And so there are certain things that you want to go, yeah, when in doubt, you throw it away out, as they say at the USDA. And um, and I think that that's important for people to kind of keep a, an eye on, you know, be be present when you when you look at your jar you're going to use and you open the lid and when you dispose of something that's obviously um uh you know has botulism in it you you need to wear gloves you need to be very careful you need to um boil the jar and then throw it away throw the food away and then sanitize the jar to so you could like with alcohol or uh you know, what is it? Not alcohol. Uh, bleach. Bleach. We don't use much bleach right here. I don't <laughs> oh, either. <laughs> I, don't I do other things usually, but you know, you want, you have to be very careful and you don't want it. And then you need to clean yourself and all of the countertop, wherever it was, you need to be very careful because it's not to be, it's not to be trifled with, you know, botulism yeah. kills. Not that many cases of of foodborne illness with home canned, and usually in most cases they can actually track it back to improper canning procedures. Aha, that is why they our fellow canners need to do it right. You yeah, know, if you follow the the sage advice, and I don't mean sage as an herb, but you know the knowledgeable
0: advice of others, then you'll be okay. Yeah. you will. And I, I will add to that one too, is, um, is bubbles that move bubbles that are active when the jar, like if this was a jar, just sitting on the shelf and it, they're moving because sometimes you'll see little air bubbles. Even if you have, you know, went around the oh, yeah. rim, like you're supposed to, especially on things that are thicker, like pie fillings, you'll see stationary air bubbles. And those are fine. It's the active movement that is a sign of spoilage. Good point. I should have
1: pointed that out as well, because that's a really good indicator as well. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Georgia, thank you so much for coming on. to sit and chat with a kindred spirit um, and get to, to pick your brain as well. Um, and so you have several books out um, and some new books coming out. So we'll make sure and put the link to those beneath this video. If you're watching this on YouTube, or if you're listening to this, just as the podcast file, then we'll put those in the blog post that accompanies this episode. So you can go and check out all of your lovely work. And thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it was a pleasure as usual and happy canning, keep it up. <laughs> well, I hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did and now we are going to dive into our verse of the week. So we are in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4 and this is the amplified translation of the Bible. Blessed and enviable, happy with a happiness produced by the experience of God's favor and especially conditioned by the revelation of his matchless grace, are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And this is part of the chapter where it goes through a lot of the blessings, where it talks about blessing are those who are poor, those who are meek and goes so on and so forth. But this one, I was just kind of, meditating on this morning, going through some of these. And the one that mourned, I found. I'm not sure if intriguing is quite the word that I'm looking for, but it's when we think of mourning, we think of grief, right? We think of the loss of something. And that is not something that any of us think of with being blessed or enviable, happy. I can't say that I've ever looked at somebody who was in mourning and thought, man, they are blessed to be mourning, or I am envious of happiness that they have because they're mourning. Like th- Our human minds and brains just don't work that way. At least mine don't. But as I read through this, and it's telling us that they, those who are mourned are blessed because they shall be comforted. And when we kind of dig into that a little bit deeper, also going back to the Old Testament, that verse specifically in Isaiah 61 too, because I I love to do that. I love to go back to the Old Testament where some of these verses are, are pulled from and doing some cross word study when I'm going through my Bible reading. But for this one in particular, because when you are in a place of mourning, sometimes it can feel very isolating, even if you have... Uh, family members, or friends, or, or people who are close to you, mourning for the most part feels like a very isolating and personal thing. It's very hard to share mourning with other people, at least for me. And so because it can feel so lonely, this verse is telling us that if we are reaching out to God, that we will be comforted, that he will send his comforter, that he sees us, that we are not alone in our mourning, and that he will be there for us in a special way. And in fact, that we will be blessed by his presence in a very special way and will be drawn close to him in a way that we don't really experience unless we're in some of these um, circumstances and mourning being one of them. And so I still have to be honest and say I don't look forward to mourning because usually that means a loss of something, not necessarily a death of a person, though, of course, if someone dies that is close to you, you are going to mourn. But sometimes it's losses of different things. I still don't look forward to mourning, but the comfort of knowing when we do enter into mourning, because as we're on this earth, we are going to experience loss um, in some capacity different times throughout our life. That when I enter into a period of mourning, that I know that I will be blessed by a special presence and comforting of God. And that feels soothing, just knowing that, even if that's not a spot that we're in in that exact moment. And I had the honor of someone who was going through some mourning to actually, um, to help lift them up during that time frame and that probably sounded a bit cryptic the way i was wording it because it's not something that i really wanted to publicly share Um, but it came at a time when i had the experience to be with someone who was mourning um, and then read this verse and it just kind of pulled that all together so i thought that i would share it with you here today So thank you so much for being with me here on this episode. I look forward to being here with you next week. And all of the different things that we were talking about in today's episode, if you didn't catch them at the blog post, you can go to melissacanaris.com forward slash 398. We always have a blog post that accompanies every single episode or if you are watching this via youtube via the podcast you'll see it beneath here in the video description including uh, my books on home food preservation george's books on home food preservation and a ton of articles on dot norris.com that talk about all different aspects of home food preservation including canning but the other forms as well so blessings and mason jars for now my friend